Hello and welcome to another weekly podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. If you're in the Mankato area, join us every Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at MankatoHilltop.org. Best of all, God is with us. Well, welcome. Again, I just want to say welcome to you if this is your very first time here with us. We would love to connect with you. We do that over text message. You can text the word NEW to 507-575-4222, and that'll send me a message, and then I can connect with you that way. Uh, We're not signing up for the church newsletter. Just want to get to know you a little bit better. So we are in the midst of a sermon series we kicked off last week on the Sermon of the Mount. So for several weeks now, we're gonna go through the Gospels uh, of Matthew uh, chapters five, six, and seven. So this is the second uh, sermon in that series. So we're gonna pick up the Sermon on the Mount where we left off. We're just going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are starting in verse 13. Just a couple of verses today because there's a lot to unpack in this. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 13. This is Jesus speaking here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Holy Scripture. All right, so if you were here last week at the first service, what was that? (laughs) And if you weren't here, you're like, what is he talking about? I got sick. On Easter Sunday of all days, oh my goodness, it was crazy. I almost passed out at the first service. And if you were here at the second service, you saw I barely could get through. I am feeling much better today. Thank you very much. Thank you for all your cards and your calls and your texts. I appreciate it. Of all the days to get sick, Easter Sunday, no. So I just wanted to say thank you all for your care and concern. I'm feeling much better now. And uh, I got a really bad case of the norovirus. It was not good. But anyways, here we go. So uh, Easter part two. Last week when I was not feeling well, I was laid up on the couch. And you know, what do pastors do when they're laid up on the couch? They're watching other people's sermons. I was watching sermons from other pastors. I know I'm a total nerd, right? None of you ever do that. I, I tend to listen to about five or six other people's sermons every week, but because I was on the couch, I got to listen to about a dozen of them. It was fine. And I'm trying to like listen for really great bits of information. There's one pastor who I just really resonated with what she said in her Easter sermon. And maybe you resonated with something I have said, so it's just a mutual great feeling when that happens. Cindy Gregerson, who is our conference director of ministry, was preaching at a church, and I watched her sermon. She said this, and I thought, oh my gosh, this feels so much like where we are. So what does resurrection mean in the face of full catastrophe living? Because it better mean something more than just a good story and a nice song. That really resonated with me, especially that phrase, full catastrophe 
living. Has anyone had like full catastrophe living in the, I don't know, last few months or years? Does it feel at all like we're carrying heavy burdens, that there's challenges in our world and they can kind of weigh us down from time to time? So in order to kind of address that, and, and I've been feeling this way myself, maybe you've been feeling this way, and it waxes and wanes depending on the news cycle or what's happening in our world at the time. You know, something seems to hit the news, and then I feel like we all as a collective society go, Ugh, really? And whether that's a new support Supreme Court ruling or whether that's another mass shooting by guns or whether it's some political turmoil somewhere or whatever, we all, I don't know about you, I, I, I'm certainly feeling like this kind of like, <sighs> again? And part of the reason I wanted to do this series now for the next several weeks and walk through the Sermon on the Mount is because I feel like the Sermon on the Mount has answers for us. Helps us see how to live with all of this full catastrophe we seem to be living with. And so if you feel like that at all, that's sort of the goal. I'm going to do this for several weeks, so we'll see if we actually achieve the goal. But I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of those teachings. Like, we really need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Because if we do, that helps us get through the full catastrophe parts of our life. Now, what I often find is we're not really using the Sermon on the Mount we're using other things. I don't know about you. We're using social media or forwarded emails or cable news or gossip or what our friends or relatives think or whatever is the new hot take, whatever the new hot take is now about whatever thing is rolling around in the media. Or it's usually like on one of these sides, whatever is woke or whatever is not woke, pick a side. And then that's what we like gravitate to. And I want to just like slice through all of that, slice through the media, slice through all of this messaging, slice through the gossip, slice through the social media, because I think Jesus wants to offer us a way out of this, a way out of this. So one of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, he's a retired professor at Duke. Here's what he had to say about the Sermon on the Mount. I was like, he says it better than I can. I just want to read it to you. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of requirements, rather a description of the life of the people gathered around Jesus. To be saved is to be so gathered. That's why the Beatitudes are the interpretive key to the whole sermon, precisely because they're not recommendations. No one's asking us to, to uh, no one is asking to God and trying to be poor in spirit, or trying to mourn, or trying to be meek. Rather, Jesus is indicating that given the reality of the kingdom, we should not be surprised to find among those people who are following, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. Moreover, Jesus does not suggest that everyone who follows him will possess all the Beatitudes. Mm -mm. But we can be sure that some will be poor, some will mourn, and some will be meek. I think what he's trying to say there is that starting out like we did last week, reading, these beat, reading the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacekeepers, it's kind of like saying, here's what it means to follow Jesus. Not that we seek those things, but those, those things happen. And then we get to this passage today, and he talks about salt and light. Okay, so I could do a whole sermon on like how salt was used in the ancient world. I'm not going to do that. No, mm -mm. 
What was salt used for? It was used for sacrifice. It was used for loyalty and covenant. It was normal. When, when people shared a meal together, they would be called sharing salt. And so people would enter into a binding relationship. It was used for purification. Of course, it was used for seasoning. And we know from historical sources that it was used for preservation. All of those are in the Bible. But actually, it's kind of a silly saying, isn't it? Salt, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, there's a proclamation. But then he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? What are we to make of this? This is what I want to pick this up on. Because this is really, if salt loses its saltiness, we're going to miss what Jesus is trying to get at here if we don't look at this carefully. So I was reading some rabbinical sources, rabbis, ancient Jews that were writing about this many, many, many years ago. And one rabbi from the rabbinic tradition said this, salt that loses its saltiness. It's like, how do you get saltiness back? You salt it with the afterbirth of a mule. (laughs) You're all like, what? It's meant to be funny. It is. It's meant to be funny. Now, because none of you all are farmers, you don't know that mules are sterile. How do you salt something with the afterbirth of an animal that's sterile? That's the point. The point being is, it's a contradiction in terms. It's something that doesn't exist. Do you know salt that loses its saltiness? It doesn't really happen, I suppose, right? Like you can dilute it with enough river water, right? Like take your salt shaker, pour it in the Minnesota River there. You can't taste the salt. But the salt didn't dissolve, and it didn't lose its saltiness. It just got, you know, it just got, uh, oh, man, I need to brush up on my science terms. Desalination or something like that, right? Like it's, so, basically Jesus is saying that a disciple who does not live out the values of the kingdom doesn't make any sense. You either are a disciple and you do live out the values of the kingdom, or we aren't and we don't. It's basically trying to, I think he's really trying to make a point here. Salt can lose its saltiness. He's asking, really? Can anyone ever be unsaved? We kind of tend to think the answer to that question is yes, but I think Jesus is really trying to say, no, no. No, because that's not the gospel. See, we have been chosen by God from before the beginning of time. To say that we are the salt of the earth, it actually proclaims that gospel. It didn't say, you might be the salt of the earth. Or, if you do this, then you will be the salt of the earth. No, what does it say? You are the salt of the earth. You are. It's a proclamation. It's a proclamation of God's love to us. We have been chosen by God since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time. And to say that we are the salt of the earth is to proclaim that gospel. Now, I know what you're thinking. It says some of the salt that is not salty is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Who is that? Well, here's the thing. The status of our relationship with God does not change from God's perspective. His love remains forever for us. You were here Easter Sunday, right? His mercy is for forever. 
His love for us remains for forever. Now, there are those who might choose not to love. Maybe choose that eternally. That's what it might be like to say that salt has lost its saltiness, which isn't a thing in God's perspective. It could be a thing in our perspective, but it's not a thing from God's perspective. We were created for love, to live in love, and you can choose to forsake love all you want, but why would anyone ever do that? Have you met some people in this world who are like, ah, that love stuff, just overrated. Chuck it. We don't need it. I, I honestly have never met anyone with that attitude. Maybe they exist. Maybe you know them. But I have never met a person who's like, you know, that love, it just sounds too good to be true. I don't need any of that in my life. No, because we are created for that love. We are created to experience that love. And so, people who don't want love, it's like a non-thing. It's like an unsalt salt. So to be the salt of the earth, if you were to look it up, you've heard that phrase, right? Maybe you call some people that, you know, they're like, oh, Uncle Jack, he is a salt of the earth person. You know what I'm talking about? You've used that phrase before? What does it mean? You know what it means? I mean, it comes from this biblical text. I had to look it up because I wasn't quite sure. I've said it, but I was like, what did I really mean by that? <clears throat> here's what, here's what Merriam-Webster says. A very good and honest person or group of people. It's almost like that person has earned it, hasn't it? Except for we don't tend to say that. Look at how hard they worked. They became salt of the earth. No, we look at someone and said, there's something about their character that we would say they are like salt of the earth. Not based on anything they do, but on who they are as a person in their being. See, when God looks at you, when God looks at me, when he looks at each of us here, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are a good and honest person, not by your own efforts, rather through his love in this world. My presence in this world and his presence in our life. Now, that doesn't mean that we keep that forever, right? I'm not saying there is no sin. That's not what I'm saying. Of course there is sin. What I'm saying is sin is like unsalt salt. It's not meant to be. It does happen. But it doesn't change the status from God's perspective. His love remains steadfast. We try to act in unsalty ways, even though it goes against our nature and even though we know better. Why? Because we've been infected with sin. So we do that, yes. But it's like doing the thing you're not created for. And here again, like, it doesn't change the perspective of God for us. But see, that runs against us some way because we like, to, we like to live by law. We like to live by, here's the rule and I will follow it. We don't like gospel, this free grace, this free love that's for everybody. So right now you might be feeling a little like, mm, Pastor, what do you mean? I don't want to do anything to earn my salvation, but I want to do something. Give me some good deeds to do. When I was researching this, I found plenty of theologians who said that. Here, here's one. I won't even say their name because whatever. Here's a quote. This 
talking about, talking about light and salt. This light and salt corresponds to the good deeds of the disciple. Disciples should shine their light before other people so that the people encounter God's presence through their good deeds and praise God. No. I don't think so. Just be good enough. Maybe God will like you. If you do just enough good deeds, then maybe God's salvation will be for No! <laughs> that is not the gospel, as I understand it. That's not how it works. God's love remains constant for us. And then just a few, uh, 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 in the next verse, after we, let's get off salt and talk about light for a minute, what does it say? What does he say? He said, oh, you might, you, you might be light if you do all the right things. You're all supposed to say, no, pastor. <laughs> no, pastor. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, you are you are the light of the world. Period. Unqualified. Not you might be the light of the world. Not if you just do these good things over here, then you will become the light of the world. No, you are the light of the world. That same theologian who I was talking about, that shall remain nameless, here said it like this. As the Beatitudes also attest, the two images of salt and light thus highlight the distinctive character and actions of disciples. No! No, they don't. They highlight the distinctive characteristics of not people, God. They highlight the specific characteristics of who God is. This is a classic mistake that so many of us make. So many of us. We put ourselves in the place where God should be. Being salt and being light points to who God is. And if we are ever a salt and light, it's through his action among us, not to highlight who we are, but to highlight who God is and who his grace is and who his love is for. And just because it mentions good works in verse 16, it did. It mentioned good works in there. You thought it. That doesn't mean now we somehow earn our salvation. If we just do enough good works, God will love us. Mm-mm. If any good works are done, it's not to call attention to our character. Rather, it's to call attention to God's character. The kind of God who would love us before we even turn to God. The kind of God that would love us even if he was on his way to the cross. And we were ready to crucify him. He would continue and does continue to love us. To be the light of the world, one other theologian put it this way, and I just love the way he said it. It's not a command, it's a promise. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. You are the light of the world. And neither is it exclusive. It's not some of you, the ones who truly believe, the ones who go the extra mile, the ones who follow the letter of the law. It's not that they are just the light of the world. It's an all-inclusive statement. You are the light of the world. Already, you are the light of the world. Right now, having done nothing, contributed nothing, earned not a thing, right now, already, at this very moment, all of us sinners are the light of the world. Jesus explicitly announced this. Now you're thinking, okay, 
is this a little bit like a premature celebration here, Jesus? Do you know the people we're talking about here? Think about it now. This happens in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus really hasn't even started his ministry. He just grabs a bunch of ragtag people off the side of the street, says, hey, come up to the mountain. I'm going to teach you disciples what it means to be my disciple. You got people that are fishermen, former fishermen, tax collectors, all those things. And then this ragtag group of people, does he even know who they are? And yet he makes this proclamation. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, often where this can show up in churches, and sometimes here, is not really believing in grace. What do I mean by that? Not really believing that this statement is true. Yes, pastor, but you don't know me. You don't know the difficulties I've had. You don't know what I just did before I came to church. You don't know the tension that's in my relationship with my sister. You don't understand the hurtful things that have been done to me. You don't understand the hurtful things that I have done to others. But that's how grace works. Because regardless of those things, God's love for us remains constant. Now here's one of the ways that this plays out here at, United, at the United Methodist Church. It's when we come to this table. We're not having communion today. But when we come to this table, some people say, you know, I'm just not good enough to come and receive communion. And I'm like, baloney. None of us are good. That's why we're invited. We are all here, not on our earning, but on God's love for us. And I don't know about you, but I need to be here to receive some love. Because when I go other places, I don't always receive the love. And so his invitation to come to the table is for everybody. Not just for the people in the in club, not just for the good people over here, not for all of those who live a perfect lifestyle in their great suburban home somewhere. Not here. No, it's for everybody. All sinners, come. Come to the gospel feast. Come and receive his love. Come and receive his mercy. Because whatever it is you think you've done doesn't matter to God. His salvation is for you and for me. It's a proclamation. Another way that this plays out is when we baptize. When we baptize and invite people into this community, this grand worldwide movement of God in the world, not just the United Methodist Church, but also the United Methodist Church, but part of the churches worldwide. Sometimes people ask, well, why do you guys baptize babies? Because it doesn't matter what they do. Because God's love for them is constant. Well, they might grow up and fall away from the church. Yeah, sounds like most everyone I know, including me, if you've heard my story before. Didn't change God's love for me. In his prevenient grace, in his grace we know, it's a proclamation. And so we can say that little baby that might be baptized, <laughs> you're so cute and... You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not based on that baby's goodness, but based on God's goodness in this world. Athanasius of Alexandria, 
an ancient theologian, church father, said, the incarnation was prepared long before we ourselves or even the world was in being. Meaning God's saving work was coming into the world long before we were ever born. From before every beginning, it was already true that there was nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And here's something I need you to know. I really need you to know this. I hope last week's sermon and this week and all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. God is not, not angry with you. He's not. Now, maybe you grew up in a church where that was preached. And maybe you think somehow, you don't know, pastor, I've done things. I was in jail, strung out on cocaine, had an affair, whatever. But his love for you remains. He never was and he never will be mad at you. See, he's looking for your healing. He has a balm for your soul. We have been healed. We are experiencing healing and we are waiting to be healed. All of us. All by the action and decisions of God long before I was ever born. From the beginning of time. We are not, not, we are not, trying to stress this enough, justified by any good deeds we do, which makes justification merely a future potentiality. No, we are justified not by our decision to believe, which makes faith its own kind of deed and works. We are justified by the divine decision already present at the start of creation. So, so today, today, Hear this good news, please. Please hear it in a new way. You are the light of the world. You are right now. No matter who you are, no matter who you fail to be, you are the shining light and righteousness of Christ, not because you decided to follow Jesus, not because of anything you've done or abstained from doing, But because Jesus Christ, and in him, God decided he wanted to be a God with you. You are the light of the world right now. No matter how much you prefer the darkness, or no matter how dim your life feels today, you are shining with the righteousness of Christ. Amen. May it be so. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. Don't forget to visit us online at MankatoHilltop.org.